Welcome to another episode of the Cigar Snob Podcast. I am Nick Jimenez, and on this episode, I am joined by a very special guest in between flights here, uh, Fred Vandermelier. Did I say that right? You said it. This was perfectly. Very, I've been preparing for the last four hours <laughs> to say that. I can't imagine. Uh, so, uh, Fred is from the uh, the family behind Jay Cortez. You are the the sort of current young generation uh, in, what is it, three generations deep now? Correct. It's been uh, a, about a century? 98? Close by. 100 years? Uh, my grandfather started making cigars in 1926. And this was where? Because again, we're sort of assuming that a lot of people have of no course. idea who or what we're talking about. I can't about. imagine. Uh, a little tiny country in the middle of Europe, uh, which is named Belgium. You know, I mean, uh, in former days, we were not known at all. Uh, nowadays, we make some uh, some great beers over there, and we have Tomorrowland, and uh, and quite some people, let's say, have uh, thanks, and we have great chocolates, and of course, fantastic cigars and cookies. So, uh, so in a way, I mean, we're a little indulgence place in the middle of Europe, and uh, and I'm born in a small town, even I mean, uh, Kortrijk, at at one hour driving from Brussels, which is the capital of Belgium, and so my grandfather started very. Close by, you know, I mean, uh, 10 minutes drive from where I live now. Started making cigars in 1926. And uh, the the funny thing is that, I mean, in uh, in Belgium at that period, because you would say Belgium cigars, you know, I mean, there is no clue that, I mean, where is the link? You know, who starts making cigars in Belgium at that time? And uh, he was one of hundreds of cigar makers. Like every town, town had a little brewery. Uh, let's say almost 200 towns in Belgium, which was quite a lot because we're only a country of 10 million people. So you have to imagine 200 cigar makers in New York City, uh, which is quite amazing. You know, I mean, that all over Belgium, you had plenty of people making cigars. Yeah. And, um, and so he started, I mean, selling cigars and then afterwards making cigars at his attic. And uh, in our region as well, and, and where does that come from? You know, I mean, I can explain that later, but we smoke a lot of smaller cigarillos. And uh, the history of that came from the Dutch, you know, I mean, who, uh, who rather liked to smoke cigars, but okay, maybe didn't want to spend a lot of money. And big cigars were expensive, so they started making small cigars. Secondly, also, we're living in a cold area, so that means that when you're going outside, you want to go out for a short smoke. So um, they, I mean, they made it short fillers, eh? because if you make a small cigarillo, you cannot make it with a long filler. So they made short fillers, and as such, he started making long short fillers, as many others in the in the region uh, with us. And uh, and he continued to do that for yeah, many years, and he uh, worked day and night because he made uh, eight kids, uh, among other um, among others, my uh, my father, who was the youngest of uh, of these eight. And five of them worked in the in the company and uh, and had a I mean each had their role and my dad when he came in he tried to pick a role that nobody else had one was doing the the leave buying another was making the blends making the cigars another one was doing the sales in Belgium so he focused on sales outside of Belgium and on brand building let's say he was the only yeah. one with really a marketing feeling and started building brands and uh, and as such he made I mean developed uh, the brand Cortez, Neos, other brands uh, throughout the years. And throughout the years also developed uh, a sales team all over Europe. And as um, I mean, nowadays we have more than 100 people uh, selling cigars in, uh, in Europe, going from shop to shop and uh, try to actively, I mean, let's say, promote our cigars as much as we still can legally uh, and make sure that they are in the shop and that people uh, try to, to get them and to buy them. Yeah. So just for the sense of giving the person listening a, a sense of scale, um, you know, we, we ran through, you know, some of that, uh, of that history. 
Can you give me a sense of what the growth of the company looked like, maybe in terms of number of cigars or, or something like that? Um, the numbers are totally different than the numbers you have in the handmade right. uh, zone, of course. But I think when my grandfather started, he made it, he made 10,000 cigars, let's say, a year. And, uh, and when my dad started, uh, we made 20 million cigars, maybe, uh, 25. And uh, when I started, which was then 40 years later, I mean, we made... Close to 500 million cigars. Yeah, which cigarillos. is several multiples of what even some of the biggest uh, handmade cigar factories are making. That's which it. Which makes enough sense. I mean, handmade versus machine-made. That's it. If you smoke them, normally you smoke more of them as well. I mean, it's a different <coughs> pace of smoking than, uh, than a handmade cigar is. So it's logical that the numbers are smaller. And uh, I have to say the dollar numbers are also smaller than, of course, you know. So it's not... Uh, you can't compare both worlds. But, but okay, you know, I mean, it's sure. uh, with the 500 million... We have approximately, more or less, depending what you take in or not in there, I mean, we have 5 to 8% of the European market of uh, short filter cigars. Right. So let's talk about uh, you specifically. Uh, can you remember what was, the, what was the time or where were you like in, in life when you had whatever looked most like the decision of I'm going or I'm not going to do this with my life. I imagine at some point you sort of face that choice of, am I going to follow in the family business or am I not? And what was it that, that led to your deciding, this is where I'm sticking around? Uh, I'm born on a cigar leaf, I think. Yeah, I <laughs> think I, let's say on, the tobacco. on the company history page on the website, it mentions that you were born wrapped in tobacco. <laughs> <Yeah>. which, <laughs> there which you I go. Was good. There you go. Swaddled in tobacco. Indeed. So you see me coming out, you know, I mean, uh, I was I was feeling good there. And uh, luckily they didn't smoke me <laughs> and uh, just <laughs> kept me in there for a while. But um, but okay, no, uh, the, the thing is that, I mean, since we are, I have two older sisters who are 10 and 14 years years older and uh, I get along very well with them but 10 and 14 years older is quite an age difference and both of them I mean one was working my dad had another company in tobacco and one was working there and my other sister didn't work for the family business and uh, I studied economics at university economies at the university in uh, in Belgium and when I came out of the university, I have to say that I wanted first to uh, to go somewhere else to, I mean, to to learn from outside world, you know, I mean, how business was and when I did things wrong, I mean, <laughs> not to do it with the money of the family. But at that moment, uh, in the other tobacco business we had, uh, my dad, I mean, acquired another little company and said, like, look, Fred, I mean, I need to hire somebody to try a project and I want to, uh, let's say, I mean, get him dismissed or throw him out after six months if I want to. And I don't want to do this to anybody except to you. <laughs> so in a way, it was the nice introduction to say like, please come work here. And I doubted in the beginning a little bit to say like, yeah, I mean, is this really, I mean, is this the moment? Isn't it too dangerous to only being focused on your own family business? That's the only thing that you know. I mean, I'm, I'm afraid that sometimes when you do that, that you get really narrow minded and that you don't open your eyes and look around you because you're really, you do things like they always have been done and etc. What I, what my personal point was at that, my view was like, look, I have the luck to be born in a nest like that, you know, so it's uh, it's in one way, it's a real luck. So if you have the luck and you have the opportunity, you have to take it. But of course, then you have to be also honest to yourself. You have to know what you know, or what you don't know. And in the first year that I worked within the tobacco business, I mean, the first eight to 10 years, I think it's only after eight to 10 years that I really felt after working here that I got to understand what 
tobacco was about, what a cigar was about, and what doing business was about. And uh, so it really, I mean, it could, I mean, we have a, a, so it went really step by step. I learned a lot. I went a lot. I went to tobacco fields all over the world. Uh, one little funny anecdote is that when I was 18, uh, I came here to Connecticut, to the fields, uh, to learn how tobacco was picked, how it was hanging the drying barns and everything. And uh, I did this, one, to learn about tobacco, but two, my dad said, like, look, you know, well, I mean, it will improve your English. It's good that you're for a couple of months. It was during summer holidays, like two months. It's good that you're during two months over there. You know, you will speak daily, uh, you will speak English, and, I mean, it will surely improve your English. I said, great. So I arrived on the tobacco fields in, uh, in, in Connecticut, and I said to the guys who were picking with me, I said like hi guys they all look strange <laughs> they said like hola <laughs> ah, okay <laughs> so they were all mexicans costa ricans whatever great people i had a fantastic time and i had my first crash course of spanish instead of instead of english, instead of english. <laughs> That's good. but it was really a nice time and you see so throughout my life the things if you do an internship if you do uh, at university you have to do like your end term work eh, uh, your thesis and that thesis i did specifically on tobacco publicity i mean or publicity on tobacco products in the belgium region and the history of that so let's say all things that i did were related to cigars were related to tobacco which was uh, logical and then you know, I mean, because of that, the thing that my dad said, I entered into the business and uh, until now I never got out. And, and the more I'm in there, of course, the more fun you have because the more people you know and the more you feel acquainted with everything that is going around. Sure, sure. Um, so I, I want to ask about, you know, what some of the lessons were from that and other experiences, you know, that you had as you sort of dove deeper. Uh, but before that, uh, again, on the on the company history website, the, the other thing besides being wrapped in tobacco that I wanted to get into was um, it mentions you're uh, running the company with a work hard, play hard <laughs> mentality. Um, so, so what would you say that that means to to you? And and what I'm especially curious about is I, I imagine if uh, if it's you know sort of called out for you in particular, maybe that was something. There's something new that you feel like you're bringing to the company. So. What would you say that each of those generations sort of contributed to that legacy? And what is it that you feel you're bringing or trying to bring? What is the stamp you're trying to leave on Jay Cortez? Uh, if you look throughout generations, it's clearly that the ones, the one who starts it, I mean, has the, I mean, one of the biggest parts, you know. So, I mean, my grandfather, really, that's for me the biggest entrepreneurial or one of the biggest entrepreneurial steps you do. Because it really starts from scratch and you start doing something, try to sell it. Second generation... Uh, to me also, I mean, because we have acquired different companies and I think the biggest uh, financial danger we have put on our history was surely during that period. I mean, we were not uh, big enough, you know, I mean, to be able to carry a lot of uh, debt or, or, or things. So the moment you acquire another company, you need to integrate it. The dangers are really huge on your total operations. And I think they did this, they did in a fantastic way. Secondly, they were also, like I said, brand builders. So they were, again real entrepreneurs and maybe later on we will talk about the olivas but if you see like both generations it's a bit similar you know i mean the one uh, starts really with the love for the product right. which the second generation really okay has into him you know so the the, the the product is clearly there but adds onto that fantastic product also a kind of brand building which doesn't always mean that i mean which is for me not really of 
putting more or, or gaining more money. No, it's 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 trying to have trust with your with your smokers and trying to to within a name. I mean, say to people, if you buy this name, we secure you quality, we secure you great taste, we secure you fantastic products. And our job is really to secure that from the beginning to the end, from year on year out. So um, in in a way, that's that's second generation. Now third generation. I mean, I have the. The luck again. So I mean, they were with five at home, but I mean, we really, in a very, very nice way, always got along very well uh, with all the un- with my my father, with his brothers and and sisters. So that he was the youngest one, and the moment that uh, his brothers and sister went on um, uh, retirement, uh, they sold their shares to the rest of the bunch. As he was the youngest one, he was the the one that ended with all right. shares. But we still have family parties with everybody, with all my uncles and all my aunts. And this is, I think, a part, because I often believe that family businesses, the biggest advantage is really the family. You know, I mean, it's the strength of the family business. But it can immediately also be its biggest weakness. So the family behind the family business has to assure that they get along well and that they as a family respect each other and that they know at what moment what to do to secure the continuity of the of the company. So I think they did a fantastic job during that generation. And then now... Now, at my generation as well, I mean, we had the same discussions earlier, of course, and my dad had them. I had the same discussions with my sisters. And, uh, and okay, I mean, they also said, like, Fred, you're in the business. You're moving on. You know how it is. And they gave me the chance to continue and to really also, I mean, uh, acquire their shares. Why? So that I can really have a, a, a free road for the future, let's say, to, uh, to, to do the things how I think that they... Uh, yeah, not need to be done, but it's easier, of course, if you don't have to have discussions left or right with uh, with with people who are maybe not day to day involved in your business. Right. So as such, uh, what do I try to bring? I think like, look, I mean, uh, we have fantastic brands, you know. I mean, and 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 we have great products. So I don't think I think I don't think that I have to reinvent the wheel. The only thing that I have to make sure is that these products are found, uh, that the distribution is surely perfectly done, that the continuity of the quality the flavor the taste that everything is really 100% still as it was uh, two generations ago so that it's really done with care for the product and then of course I mean the thing that we can bring on is uh, well, let's say the, the work hard part is surely something that is something in the family you know I mean we uh, we love what we do so I mean uh, working is playing while you're working because you just love what you do uh, but so we work very hard but then the the other part for me is of course like that play hard uh, part is and it's something that has been in our family as well but i do think when you work in a family business and you work with people all around you i mean you have to make sure that everybody has a great time sure. and this you do first of all by having a good work environment you know where you give people's their responsibilities you know this is great in family business you are not put in a small square where you can just do this no i mean if you're really entrepreneurial yourself you can grow along the line i mean uh, within within the family business and that's fantastic giving people let people grow together with you i mean have them let them have a great time and then of course when everything went on well and and you did it you had a a nice year it's great to share that with everybody with all the people that you like around you and uh, and there's where that play hard thing comes in where we let's say i mean when we have the possibility we like to throw a little party and we like to all together you know like to enjoy i mean if we had a good year or the things that happen right right so um we're we're smoking Oliva Melanio, which is, uh, or Oliva Serie B Melanio, uh, 
which is a cigar that we are extremely well acquainted with here. It's been, you know, consistently uh, uh, ranked highly on our on our lists of the best cigars of the year and and what have you. In 2016, for those of the people listening who are maybe not aware of this, in 2016, Jay Cortez bought uh, Oliva. So uh, most of our listeners are going to be hand-rolled cigar smokers. Talk a bit, you know, without getting too much into the weeds on what production looks like, talk a bit about maybe just sort of what the approach to making hand, uh, handmade versus machine-made cigars, how that's different and how it's similar. Um, I think people might, might especially be interested in how what the differences in the blending process. Um, and then uh, let's get into, uh, you know, what what drew you to Oliva and, and what the marriage of those two, uh, marriage may not be the right word, that sounds a little freakier than intended, <laughs> but what the, what the merging of these two families in the cigar business uh, has looked like and why it's worked. Okay. That's great, great. You're a fantastic interviewer of putting five questions into one sentence. <laughs> so, um, no, firstly, uh, let's say the similarities and the differences. I think it's a, if you see them uh, from far away, it's a different world. Eh? Uh, the, uh, the the products are really... Uh, and depends, you know, the, the point is that uh, machine-made cigars, there has been a lot of misuse of what machine-made cigars uh, were in the past. In the past, machine-made cigars were handmade cigars in small. And, uh, and nowadays, uh, unfortunately... Uh, Machine-made cigars in the U.S. surely, you know, I mean, in the U.S. it's for me it's a totally different world. We cannot even, I mean, with the machine-made cigars, we cannot do anything in the U.S. because these cigars are totally different to the ones we make because we are too classical, you know. I mean, we're too old-fashioned into the way we make the product. But a machine-made cigar was a cigar uh, for me. The definition is really a hundred percent tobacco cigar, which is let's say if which is too small to make by hand, and uh, and the reasoning is that. That's what you said, you know, I mean, you want to blend your cigars well. I mean, I think the, 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 the nice thing of a cigar is that you start from a leaf coming out of the ground and that in every step you, of course, have to be very careful. But that, I mean, at the end of the day, by blending different leaves and by really, I mean, looking into a flavor palette that you can make a, a fantastic and an awful cigar just with the same leaves, but blending them differently or putting them on the wrong way on your cigar right. or in your cigar. And uh, in machine mates, that's surely similar. You know, I mean, we uh, with the real machine mates, you can also do crazy things to make them very well or to make them really awful. It's sometimes even, I would say, to make, to blend a very small cigar well is sometimes, I don't diff more difficult than to blend a real long filler well. I, if in the, within the long fillers, you have sometimes the same thing, you know? I mean, why? I mean, I'm, I love Lanceros, you know? I mean, I love to smoke Lanceros. I think it's a very uh, fantastic flavor. And for me, a Lancero is also a test of quality of a factory. Yeah. If a factory can make good Lanceros in terms of drawing and in terms of flavor, to me... Most probably, you know, 99% of the production will be very good because it's a very difficult cigar to make in terms of rolling, in terms of drawing, very long, very thin. And secondly, you know, I mean, you work with half leaves, you know, you cannot work with right. full leaves because you have to have that blending into your small cigar. Yeah, you have to really know the ingredients. Really know the ingredients, really know what to put, what not to put and how to put it in your cigar because you can have a lot of fluctuation in your cigar if you don't make them well, you know. Uh, so in a way, I mean, if you then go even tinier, you know, 
know, I mean, and okay, you don't work with full leaves anymore. You chop your leaves. Uh, even then, to me, I mean, the, the smaller your cigar gets, the quicker it would become harsh. It would be it would be unpleasant to smoke. So uh, to make very small cigarillos and then to blend them in that way that they're still nice to smoke uh, is to me very, I mean, it's not, it's not the easiest thing to do. Of course, like I said, you know, I mean, the machine-made world evaluated in a way uh, that I don't like. Eh, you have a lot of uh, cigarillos that come with filters, cigarillos that come with flavors. I'm personally not the biggest fan, you know, I mean, it is what it is, it is how the market goes, you know, I mean, we have to accept where it is, but I can accept that in a way uh, that evolution is a, a dangerous evolution uh, to see still the difference between uh, a cigarillo with filter and flavor and a cigarette. Uh, where are you? So you're really tending down and I'm I'm a fan of history, so I love to read and to see where we come from, you know, and, and, and when you see where it all started 400 years ago, you know, I mean, with uh, Columbus bringing in tobaccos and they made r real cigars, of course, that they got, I mean, they got the cigar smoking from the Indians here. And if you see then, you know, that evolution, people make smaller cigars, very good, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, you can understand how that happened. Yeah, the next step is a dangerous thing. So I believe that when you, when I look to, 50 years ahead from now, you know, I mean, if you're in a family owned business and uh, I have the luck to be, uh, I mean, uh, the owner that you have to look far, far ahead. If you look 40, 50 years from now, I mean, you, of course, ask, like, will people still use your product? I do think that people will still smoke for sure. Right. People will still, I will say it differently, you know, I mean, because I often say don't smoke, but enjoy. Hey, people will still enjoy tobacco. And the best way to enjoy tobacco is within your handmade cigar. It's it's the the mo the purest way of smoking your cigar. And the fact that you maybe don't have time or that it's too cold and that you have to smoke a small cigarillo is okay. And that's maybe to have your flavor in a short shorter moment. But still, everybody who smokes cigars and who smokes uh, cigarillos from time to time to have a short smoke best moments or still the moments he's relaxing in the couch or outside at your porch and smoking a good cigar. Yeah. And you were talking earlier about the way that machine-made cigars are approached or perceived in the U.S. I think to a lot of the audience here, it, they may not realize that the the best European uh, machine-made cigars are, are blended and are approached with every bit as much craft uh, and, and care in that blending as some of the premium stuff that we're smoking out of Latin America. Um, so, so let's talk a bit about uh, the, the coming together of those two worlds in, in, this, uh, in Oliva and Jay Cortez. So okay. how, let's start with how, how that relationship began. Where, where did you uh, meet the Olivas and, and where did the, that idea of what if we made something happen here begin? I, uh, in my young career, after working a couple of years in Belgium, I uh, moved to Sri Lanka, where we have a processing plant for tobacco as well, uh, but specifically for the machine-made segment. I worked four years over there uh, with the real tobacco leaves. It's only wrappers that pass through the operations. So I saw wrappers from ourselves, but also we even make these bobbins for third parties. So I even saw a lot of tobaccos from other people coming in. And it was really great to learn a lot about, I mean, wrappers, tasting different wrappers on different products. I mean, learning a lot how people see and read that, you know, again, go and visit the fields, but then more at the Indonesian side. So different uh, tobaccos again than in Connecticut. 
And after four years, I mean, I came back to Belgium. It was a fantastic experience. I mean, I, there was a factory there and I led the factory. So I first had my first general management experience, let's say. And secondly, I had my first real tobacco experience. I mean, out of a responsibility point of view. And, um, but when I came, and when I came back into Europe, my dad had, I mean, thanks to our three, two generations, three generations company, had fantastic contacts within the European machine-made world, you know? So I had the ability to visit my colleagues very quickly. And I went around and I have to say, like, I met fantastic people, great people, who are really also still passionate about tobacco. But in Europe, I sometimes uh, feel very frustrated about the fact that we are talking less and less uh, in between cigar makers about tobacco. We're talking more and more about uh, rules from the government, like the FDA here. I mean, we have similar things in Europe, even worse. But, okay, uh, similar, let's say. But, um, but okay, I mean, so you, you when you're around and you talk with people and you visit factories, you're always looking like, huh, damn, I mean... You're, I mean, where is our passion? You know, we don't talk about our product anymore. We talk about rules. We talk about the things that we need to put our boxes, fights against this, fights against that. Also, I mean, uh, our sales teams, when I arrived, uh, they really, they were sales teams of tobacco products, but not of cigars. So when I came back, we, we tried to reinstall really that all our sales teams visited uh, tobacco fields, that they learned about cigars, even if it were machine-made cigars, but that they learned about the core of our product. So... In a way, I tried to bring in, yes, we were selling branded uh, cigars and the branding part was okay, but surely bringing in that cigar and tobacco knowledge again. And then when I was in Belgium after a year or something like that, I was able to visit my colleagues. But of course, I mean, you tend to look around broader than only, uh, only Europe. And the first thing I did, it was in the period that uh, Imperial Tobacco or, I mean, uh, was uh, looking, uh, was selling, let's say, their knowledge into China and started in China. Agio from the European part was also starting in, uh, in China. And uh, so everybody, China was like the new big thing. Uh, of course, the U.S., I knew the U.S., and I know the U.S. was a huge market, but if I knew with our products, we had no chance to succeed here. So I said, like, let's first go over there. I lived in Asia for four years, visited China and everything. My God, I came back from a very, I mean, this very disappointed trip. Not that, I mean, I loved the the China way of thinking was something very special. And I mean, I learned a lot about it and I respect it. Uh, it's a very strong culture. So I really think they will be successful in the future. But their way of looking into cigars was not at all the passionate way. They purely looked at numbers. And there were four companies who could make cigars and they were purely looking into next year, we will make so many handmades and so many machine-made cigars. Point. Uh, whom do you sell them? Uh, we will know. We will sell them to the government and they will sell them to the rest. You know, so a strange system, you know. And uh, so not at all the passion that I was looking for. And, uh, and I did the trip in China with one of our tobacco suppliers who, who is uh, a worldwide tobacco supplier. So supplying in Europe, in China, but of course also in the Middle Americas. And during my trip, you know, you're talking to the guy who's selling these the, the tobacco leaves there in China. He says like, Fred, I mean, you need to really go and d dive deeply into the Middle Americas. You know, I mean, this is where if you look for the passion that you're looking for, this is where it all is. And uh, as such, I indeed uh, did what he 
proposed me to do. So I'm uh, with his brother. It was even, you know, I mean, I did a trip in uh, in here in the Middle Americas, Martin van der Linden, fantastic guy. And I asked him, I said, like, look, Martin, I mean, uh, I know there are like hundreds of cigar manufacturers. We don't have to show them all to me, but I would love to join you. And uh, when you do your selling thing, I will uh, go out. <laughs> but I want to meet the people who are behind that and, and see how many, who these are. And, and he was very happy and open to do that because we still have a very open industry that's quite unique if you compare it with other industries i think we still have a very friendly and open industry so we were welcome and uh, i had i mean i think in three weeks i went with two more colleagues and we traveled around three weeks in dominican republic honduras uh, nicaragua and we met with plenty of people making handmade cigars all people that I knew from your magazine, for example, you know, that we were uh, reading as well. And that you, I mean, so th- th- I mean, these were like gods, you know, I mean, for <laughs> me it was. But then when you get closer to them, I mean, God is even talking to you and, and you're even talking the same language. I came back with a, a, a heart filled with passion, you know. So I really, I felt like my batteries were totally reloaded and I found people who were also in second, third generation, first generation, whatever, but who were really passionate about the product and not only about the things that I say that we're in Europe sometimes talking too much about. So when you're talking about the product, you meet some families and among others, the Olivas were one of them. And uh, and now, okay, I mean, uh, don't say it's a, a secret, but the point is that at that moment, you know, I mean, what I wanted to do was maybe making a cigar. I mean, of course, you have to see that a handmade cigar like I just said, it's still a different world. And it's still, if you compare it with the cars, yes, we have a beautiful Mercedes with uh, with Cortez. It's a really fantastic car, driving great and, and a lot of people enjoying it. But uh, some during the week, some during the weekend. But it's not a Ferrari or it's not a Maserati or it's not a really... Uh, the, the product or the, where the real passionate people are, are all looking for. Right. So in that sense, you know, I mean... I was happy to then uh, to meet with them and we loved to really launch a handmade cigar. So I approached some of the families with whom I got really, really well in touch with and I wanted to, to have a cigar, to make a cigar, to blend the cigar together. And one of them was uh, was the Aliva, so we were talking about it. And so we would be helping them to be more present in Europe. They were already nicely present in Europe, I have to say. Uh, but I mean, to really to help them to develop them further and to do that then in a joint way so that my name was, let's say, also out. And then, I mean, after the great thing with the uh, the Olivas for me is their honesty. So if you if you really, I mean, the values of the Oliva family are very very similar to our values, and uh, and so I met with uh, Gilberto even first, and then afterwards with Jose, and we had fantastic chats, you know, about the future, about the future of their company, our company. And at a certain moment, I mean, while we were discussing of maybe making a cigar together, I, I asked one thing. I said like. Make me one promise. That is, if we make a cigar together, that in the coming years afterwards, you don't know what in the future happened, but in the the, the the near future, that you don't sell, I mean, to a company that is maybe not family-owned, that is also a nice company, but okay, that maybe doesn't have, that it's difficult to really mix our values with. And uh, and as such, Jose was so nice and friendly to say, like, look, Fred, we with a family, eh, uh, the Olivas, they were four, I mean, active, there were five, but four active in the in the Oliva uh, brand and everything around it, and Oliva cigars. He said, like, look, we're four, we get along very well, but we're afraid that the growth of our company puts in danger our family ties. And this is fantastic to 
uh, think about it, you know? I mean, that you really put, uh, let's say, family first. You mm-hmm. can say it a lot of times, but they really proved it that they did it. They put family first and then business as a second point. So, um, so as such, I said, like, we think we will sell the company because we will uh, it will be difficult to continue really as a family with the four of us together because we have different views on the future and um, uh, then I said like okay uh, then we will not make the cigar together but then uh, I don't know let's give it a try maybe can I be into the loop or can you give me a chance and I have to say that it was not by the first uh, shot that we uh, that we uh, that we had success. But after, I mean, talking a lot, I mean, uh, for them, it was clear that we were the best fit of uh, of acquiring their company. And uh, and it seemed, I mean, uh, touching wood, of course. And I'm no, I'm aware we have to build it up day by day, and it has to. We have still a long way to go. But after two years now, it's more than two years, two years and a half. Uh, I have to say that I'm so glad that nothing changed in the company, uh, that the key people in the company, I mean, if it's from uh, Roletto Lamboncero up to the CEO or whatever, I mean, are people that were in the company, stayed in the company. And I also, let's say, I never imposed to really have... In the beginning, I said, like, let's put a Belgian over there, you know, I mean, which is like a logical reaction. Let's put somebody of us over there. But all positions were taken, and all the people who sat on the positions were really trustful and great people. So why do you really have to push to have somebody? Of course, we have level of controls, you know, I mean, you can do that, but let them work and let them follow the passion that they have followed during all these years. And as such, that's what we did. And I think it's part of our success, you know, I mean, the fact that we could, we were able to keep on growing in a certain pace with Oliva and we were able to continue to make great cigars and not to touch, let's say, the core of the company. And we were able, we're not there yet, I'm fully aware again, but I mean, we were able to, after two years, have our difficult name of Van der Marlieren into the cigar world of the, the premium cigar world, which is really something totally different. But to have our name already a little bit around there, where people say like, "Okay, you're not the one screwing it up," at least you yeah. know. So, so um, I, I want to get into some product specific stuff. Just you know, some of the more like you know, what do you like, what do you dislike, all that sort of thing. But before we get there, just uh, quickly, uh, how important was it to you? that aside from how well they know the tobacco and the cigar making process, that Jose is sort of certainly uh, among the most knowledgeable in some of that fight that you were talking about that you hate, that you have to think so much about in Europe, that it'd be hard to find uh, a better teammate uh, in that fight here in the States uh, who, who knows the ins and outs of some of the political battles that you're forced to fight. How much of a factor was that? A huge one. I mean, uh, uh, Jose is a uh, one of the, for me, smartest guys in the in the industry. Uh, is really somebody that had uh, has and had a vision on what uh, cigar, uh, what making good cigars is together with his brothers, but of course also putting cigars onto the market. I mean, he developed fantastic brands. I mean, he could confirm what his brothers did. He could confirm into the market and bringing cigars to people where they were recognizable. And that's one. So uh, secondly, he was a great leader because he really set up a great uh, sales team and people uh, in, in Miami as well. So he was really, he's a great leader. He's a, he's somebody that you really look up to, you know, I mean, it's a, and yeah, at the end of the day, the third part, the political part, let's say his knowledge of everything around that is a, a big plus. But I think that the first two were, for me, even sure. more important yeah. than, than the third one. Um, it had, it, of course, I mean, his connection to the, to the politics helps to understand how U.S. politics work and maybe where not to put your uh, your bullets on, you know. So, uh, But 
at the other hand, you know, I mean, it's some, it's still a very, very difficult fight, which, uh, which I don't think that Jose on his own can uh, can solve. But sure. it's for me, it's uh, it became really a true friend that uh, who also, I mean, I trusted him. I mean, the company afterwards to say like, look, I mean, please, Jose, continue as long as you can in your position as a, as I mean, or you become CEO and do do that job. He did it. Now we recently, I mean, this week we announced that, of course, he as Speaker of the House can impossible combine both jobs. If you want to do your job well, you have to have the time to spend to it. So, I mean, he he wants to do his job well as Speaker of the House for the coming two years. So we decided jointly, I mean, to uh, to appoint um, Corey Bappert as a, sure. as CEO. Uh, Corey, who has also a long-standing history with the company and and who really knows what what the cigars are and what I mean how the, the shopkeepers and who the cigar smoke are in the US and what they like and don't like yeah so uh, so it was surely key but not only him I mean uh, you have Paul Alcazar <coughs> who was a great guy in the office as well who helped a lot but you have oh, Eduardo and Pablo and Oscar in the factory who were really fantastic guys so I mean I think it's the whole team that that was very very strong and that now okay they were, they were getting fresh blood in but anyhow if you wouldn't have acquired the company anyhow fresh blood would have come in and it's a very natural smooth way how everything happened yeah. so let's uh, last thing and I, because I know we got to get you on a plane uh, just so we're ending more on cigars uh, do you have any favorite Oliva products maybe favorite pairings and finally suppose that somebody listening to this finds themselves in Europe or just otherwise in front of a bunch of your machine made products what do you think is maybe the the best introduction or the best example of of you know what your approach to to the machine made products is? Uh, so uh, again, four questions in one. Wonderful. <laughs> Oliva <laughs> products. I, I know, yeah. No, no, I follow. <laughs> uh, Oliva, uh, look, I mean. Uh, uh, the, your number uh, six of uh, of 2017, you know, I mean, uh, of course, it, at the V Milano range for me, it's the the robusto that is a, a cigar that I adore. And of course, you have the the figurado. No, which let's is, not sell yourself short. This was also number one of 2013, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so in a way, you know, I mean, that's that's really if you feel the blend. Sometimes, you know, I mean, if, if you look to cigars, what I what I love about a, a Melano is that you have complexity, you have flavor, but you don't uh, you don't really go to a very strong cigar. I mean, uh, immediately, you know, so even for people who are not smoking a lot, a lot of cigars. It's a cigar that is open for me for everybody. And the more cigars you have smoked, the more you appreciate it because it's very difficult to find such cigars in the market. Yeah. And so that's yeah, I mean, it's. Um, Easy to say because to it be, has been yeah. it has been uh, accolade by a lot of people, and then some uh, surprising things for me were surely I mean um, all cigars that the Olivas make with the Connecticut shade wrapper. Sure. So if you have I mean even on our nub you know I mean I think the nub format I love the game to turn around my nub on his ashes you know I mean like you see the publicity that we make with the true story. Uh, I think that this is also this is what nub is you know I mean it's a it's a very it's a full I mean uh, full aroma cigar of course I mean a, a bigger ringage but still I mean. I mean, feasible to smoke, bigger than that. I mean, I don't like personally to go. And that combination of that Connecticut shade wrapper yeah. with these Nicaraguan fillers is something that I adore. Because, I mean, we smoked in Europe a lot of uh, Connecticut shade wrapped cigars, but who were not flavorful. And you add a lot of flavor by that. So that's really, I mean, for me, let's say two things. 
a, a V, you know, I mean, you don't, I mean, for me, it's uh, it's also a great flavor. But I mean, I can say something about the O and the G, you know, I mean, when you see in its price class that they're fantastic as well. So I think the, 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 the things they can offer to all type of cigar smokers are really great. But these were my, the two that I firstly point out. And then if you um, go to the machine made part on our J Cortez range, which is uh, indeed not uh, possible to find yet in the US, but uh, we have that. Uh, if you start smoking a machine made cigar, uh, strangely enough, I would start at bigger range ringages, you know. I mean, uh, which is still small compared to uh, uh, to par- compared to what you have in the in the handmaids. But and then go down gradually, go, go down into the smaller ringages. Surely, don't start with a very very tiny machine made cigar because immediately I think you, the 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 impact will be too big on your mouth, and I think you will not uh, appreciate how it is. So start with bigger ringages and then go down slowly down, and then see up to what level your taste palate is accepting it. You know, so. got it. All right, yeah. So with that, you know, I, I would love to stay here all day, but uh, <laughs> I know I know you got to get out of here. Uh, so thank you very much for stopping by, man. We really appreciate it. And I'm sure we'll we'll do it again. Vice versa. Thanks a lot, and uh, enjoy the smokes. And congratulations with the great magazine and with the podcast. I have to say, it's my worldwide uh, podcast premiere. <laughs> Watch out! <laughs> so you heard I'm, it here first. I'm very very uh, glad to be able to stop by here and. Uh, Great family as well, great magazine, so keep it up. All right, thank you very much.